Well, good morning. There we go. Well, as Matt said, my name's Mike Henson. I'm a member of the Catalyst team, and I'm really excited to kick off this new series today. And before we get started, I just wanted to make sure, can everybody hear me okay over this sweater? Yeah? Okay. I just want to make sure. It's good. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and get out your outline. It's tan. It looks like this. It says, the hole in our gospel. And then go ahead and get out your response card as well. I'll tell you about that later, but if you have it out already, that'd be good. Who did some traveling this weekend? Anybody travel this weekend? It's a a heavy weekend for travel. And as I was thinking about uh, traveling and my wife and I are going from house to house on Thanksgiving, it's, it's easy to forget things when we travel. And actually, if you're built like me, it's easy to just forget things, just period, and just tangible things. And I, I, I tend to remember the things that I've forgotten at the most inopportune moments. So let me see if you've ever done this. I do this about two or three times a year. I'll be in Giant. I have a cart full of food. And when I get up to the line and start putting stuff on the conveyor, I realize that my wallet's at my house. And now I have a decision to make. What do I do? You know, I, I, I could call my wife. I could say, hey, can you bring me my wallet? Or I could say, hey, you know what? Can I set my card aside? I live 10 minutes away. I'm just going to go get my wallet, and then I'll come back. Or sometimes there's this temptation to just to say that, but then just decide, you know what? I'll just never go back to that giant again. And they'll figure it out in a few days that I'm not coming back. And they'll be like, we should probably do something with that milk, you know? Or maybe... You want to do a home project, and so you go to Lowe's, and you get everything you need. But then you get home, and it's summertime, and it's a Saturday, and you're going to replace the toilet in your wife's bathroom, hypothetically. Um, and you realize as you're doing the job, it's like, you know, and then, re- you know, replace the new wax ring. And it's like, okay, wax ring. Didn't get that. Okay, so then I got to drive back to Lowe's. And I think in the course of replacing this toilet, I went to Lowe's like four times because I just kept forgetting things, because I don't need a list. I got it, you know? And then it's like Tuesday, and my wife's like, honey, can I use the toilet in my bathroom? And I'm like, don't rush me, okay? But she's crazy. We just moved. That was the answer. This is especially uh, frustrating, though, when we're traveling, isn't it? I mean, how many times have you been traveling, and you realize you forgot something? You're at the airport. You don't have your passport, or your baggage gets lost, and you realize you, don't, you didn't put one of those little tags on. And this weekend, from this past Wednesday to today, is actually the most heavily traveled weekend of the year in America. They were talking about this on the news about three days ago. They said that this weekend, 43.6 million people travel. And I thought, these people are going to forget a lot of stuff. I thought, what are they going to forget? So I th- let's, you know, let's, let's make a list. Let's think about what are things that people are going to forget when they travel this weekend. So I want you to yell a couple things out that we can write down here that you think people forget when they travel. Toothbrush. Gross. But probably. All right, what else? Phone charger. That's a good one. Deodorant. More gross. What else? Hairbrush. What else? 
What do people forget? What have you forgotten when you travel? What is that not? Sorry, that's an H. Underwear. Okay. Makeup. That two words or one? I don't even know. Okay. That doesn't look right at all. But we'll leave it like that. All right, this is a pretty good list. Toothbrush, phone charge, deodorant, hairbrush, underwear, makeup. Last service, somebody said children. Uh, but I, I don't, I think it was just that one person. Um, all right, let's, let's look at... Let's look at an actual list. This is off volumebuy.com. Here are the top 10 things that people will forget this year when they travel. ID bags, uh, tags for your luggage. This happened to me once. My baggage got lost at the airport. My mom was like, well, I gave you that ID tag for it. I was like, yeah, I I have it, you know. Um, Toothbrush, we got it. Important contact numbers, medication, cash, the right kind of shoes, underwear, Extra socks, passport, tickets. The number one thing that people forget when they travel is their tickets. Now, if I went around the room here and talked to everybody in here, every one of you probably has a story about forgetting one of these things at some point. And these are pretty humorous stories now looking back on them. Because when we're journeying, we forget stuff. But this applies to all different kinds of journeys. And today we're looking at a different journey, and that's our spiritual journey. And when we forget things on our spiritual journey, it doesn't really have the same kind of humor to it. Because what happens if we leave something crucial behind? You know, we're living this life that God intended. We're trying to live the good news. We're trying to live the gospel. But we forget a crucial characteristic of this life that, God wants for us. Before we know it, there is a hole that's developed in our faith. There's a hole in the gospel that we're living. And there's a guy named Richard Stearns who wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. It's what we're basing this new series off of. And he used to be the president of the Lennox Corporation. Lennox makes really nice, expensive things. And he left all that to become president for World Vision, which is this relief organization that helps people in poverty, people who are hungry all around the world. And this is what he said about how he viewed the gospel for a long time. More and more, our view of the gospel has been narrowed to a simple transaction marked by checking a box on a card at some prayer breakfast, registering a decision for Christ, or coming forward at an altar call. I have to admit that my own view of evangelism based on the Great Commission amounted to just that for many years. It was about saving as many people from hell as possible for the next life. It minimized any concern for the people in this life. It wasn't as important that they were poor or hungry or persecuted, or perhaps rich, greedy, and arrogant. We just had to get them to pray the sinner's prayer and then move on to the next potential convert. In our evangelistic efforts to make the good news accessible and simple to understand, we seem to have boiled it down to a kind of fire insurance that a person can buy. Then once the policy is in effect, the sinner can go back to whatever life he was living of wealth and success or of poverty and suffering. And as long as the policy is in the drawer, the other things really didn't matter as much. We've got our ticket to the next life. There is a real problem with this limited view of the kingdom of God. It is not the whole gospel. Instead, it's the gospel 
with a gaping hole. So let me ask you this question. Has there been a time where you felt like you forgot something in your spiritual journey? Or are you there now? Are you feeling like something's missing? There's some crucial part of my life that God wants me to live that I'm simply not living because I have this boiled down version of the gospel that I choose to live. The Old Testament writer Micah, he addressed this in one of his verses. It's in your outline if you take a look. It's verse 6-8. He said, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's amazing. This verse was written about 700 years before Jesus was ever even born. And Micah saw it in his own people. You aren't getting it. You say you're living your faith, but you're missing some stuff. And then some almost 800 years later, we see this again in the New Testament. And we realize we're not the only people to have struggled with this hole in our gospel syndrome. In the latter part of the New Testament, there's a a little book written by Paul, an epistle that we're going to look at today. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, it's the book of Philemon. And some of you probably have never read this, and some people probably never will read it. It's a very short book. It's only one chapter long. It's stuck between Titus and Hebrews. If you're not careful, you can flip right by it. But I'm going to read the book of Philemon to you today. I've always wanted to teach a whole book of the Bible, so I get to do that. And I... I think I'm setting you up for success, really, because then when you get to heaven and you run into Philemon, you can be like, hey, dude, that was a great book. And they'll be like, you read my book? That's awesome. Like, nobody reads my book. Everybody's talking to Luke over here, you know? All right, so I'm going to read Philemon to you. Follow along if you have your Bibles or you can just listen. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, And to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than I say. 
At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. That's it. That's the whole. We just read a whole book of the Bible. Now, I'm going to give you the context of this letter. Paul, we think, was imprisoned in Rome at this time under house arrest. And Philemon had been converted by Paul some time ago. He met Paul. Paul shared the gospel with him, and now Philemon's been converted. And so, in a sense, Philemon owes his life to Paul. Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. His name, Onesimus, means profitable or advantageous. And when we think of slavery in the Bible, we can't think of it the way we think of slavery in America. It was different. It was more like indentured servitude. So what probably happened was Onesimus borrowed money from Philemon and couldn't pay him back. And so he said, I'll come work for you and be sort of your slave so that I can work off my debt. But he no sooner went back to work for Philemon He stole more from Philemon, and then he ran off. And somewhere in his running away and being a fugitive, he ran into Paul. And Paul shared the gospel with him and converted him to Christianity. And so now Paul is going to send a letter with one of his disciples. This guy's name was Tychicus. And he's going to send a letter to the church at Colossae. And this is where Philemon goes to church. And so he's also sending a letter to Philemon, saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you with my disciple Tychicus, and I want you to take Onesimus back. But some things have got to be different between the two of you now. And so that's what this letter is about. And what we're going to look at is what did Philemon learn that can help us live out this gospel that doesn't have a gaping hole in it? What can we learn that Philemon had to learn? And the first thing is that others experience the gospel when we reflect God's humility. We reflect God's humility. Paul said, I have come to much joy and comfort in your love, Philemon, because of the hearts of the saints. It's it's given me joy, encouragement. He says, you know, I have enough confidence to tell you what to do. I could order you, but I appeal to you on the basis of love. Micah called this walking humbly with God. When we walk humbly with God, it affects how we approach every situation. And that's especially true when it's a situation that could be potentially awkward or or confrontational. You know, Paul knows that he has the authority to tell Philemon what to do. He has spiritual authority over over Philemon, but he doesn't tell him. He asks. He says, I'm going to approach this with love, and I'm going to ask you to take Onesimus back. It's reminded me of a time when I, when I first started teaching. I'm a high school teacher, and I think it was my second year into teaching. I was 23, and I had a kid who was just in my face. He was angry. He was back-talking to everything that I said. He's like 14 years old, and for any of you who have teenagers, you're like, yeah, that's, that's what they do. But I was still relatively new to this, and so everything I said to this kid, I'd be like, okay, do you understand you know, what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to stay calm. And he'd, no, because you don't understand. And he, you know, they do that thing, you know, when they're back talking. I just, I wanted to, so finally, after this kid was just getting so angry, and I was kind of spurring his anger along, because I knew he was going to lose this argument. He's the kid. So finally, I got right in his face, and I said, listen, you little piece of, you could fill in the blank. Um, It was a weak moment. I I lost it. And I said, look, I'm an adult. You're a kid. 
shut your mouth. And I walked away. I felt really good. And I went to my boss's office, and I sat down in his chair, and I plopped down, and I just went off about this kid. See, it's a private school. So kids can get kicked out. So I basically was saying to my boss, we need to kick him out. What can we do to get him kicked out of the school? Because he just went off on me, and then I went off on him, and I hate this kid already, and I really don't want to be around him. And then finally I said to him, so how did I do with this? And he looked at me, and, and my boss, he said, well, he's going to get in trouble because he can't, he can't be disrespectful to you. You're a teacher. He's a student. He needs to know how to talk to adults. So he's going to have a consequence for that. But let me ask you this. And I thought, oh, here we go. Because my boss was a Christian, and I knew he was going to challenge me. And he said, when you got in his face and you reminded him that he was below you, is that what he needed? Or is that what you needed? And he said, look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you were right or wrong, Mike. That's not what this is about. But was there any humility in the way that you approached him? And I sat in silence, and I just thought about that, and I was so mad. I, I didn't want to hear this feedback at the time. And he said, look, I'm going to tell you something that, you, that I hope you don't forget, and I never have. He said, there's three things you can't ever let these kids affect. And I imagine this goes for any job. He said, you can't ever let one of your students affect your marriage. You know, don't, don't get into it with a kid and then go home and, you know, you're angry and take it out on your spouse. So don't ever let one of these kids affect your status as an employee at this school. Don't let them put that in jeopardy. And then he said, you can't ever let a kid affect your faith in God. He said, I think, I think you let him get to you on that third one, didn't you? Because it sounds like you sort of lost yourself for a moment there. So later that day, I, I calmed down, and I went back to this kid, and trying to not grit my teeth, I said, hey, listen, I'm sorry for the way I spoke to you. So I'm not excusing the way that you spoke to me, but I definitely could have handled that situation differently. And you know what he said? He looked me in the eye and he said, yeah, you could have. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, all right. So that's the point of humility though, isn't it? I mean, in this, now I really wanted to get him kicked out of the school. But I mean, the whole point of humility is that I can't control how anybody else approaches one of these awkward or confrontational situations. All I can do is control how I approach it and how I react. You see, one of the dead giveaways that we are or are not walking humbly with God is how we treat other people, especially those over whom we have some sort of authority. So let me ask you a couple questions here. If you're a teacher, do you remember to be humble with your students or do you belittle them? And if you're a supervisor, if you're the boss where you work, do you encourage your employees and build them up? Or do you remind them every day that you're the boss? If you're a parent, do you teach your children what a gift from God they are? Or do you only teach them that you're always right because you're the adult? For the sake of love, Paul showed humility. He could have had authority, but he showed humility. That's only the first step in filling in this hole in the gospel that we live. So the second step, the second blank in your outline, is that others experience the whole gospel when we grant God's mercy. We 
grant God's mercy. Paul said, maybe it was for this reason, for this situation, that Onesimus was separated for you for a little while, so that you could have him back for good. Not as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother. You know, a lot of Christians are merciful. But a lot of us, and I say us because I'm, I really think of myself in this way, we kind of have relegated mercy to those Christians who have the spiritual gift of mercy. Like, has anybody ever taken, have you ever taken a spiritual gifts test? Have you ever taken one of those? So I took one of these in college, and I, I took one when I started getting more involved in Daybreak, and they were both consistent. That My top spiritual gift was teaching, and my second one was exhortation or encouragement. And then they give you your lowest, the one that I took, spiritual gift, the one that you really should work on. Mine's always been mercy. I don't have mercy for people. Um, you know, I'm that kind of guy where I say, man, if, if, if I need to show mercy to someone, I know someone who has that gift, I'll send you their way, Okay. Because I don't, I don't have time for this. You screwed up. It is what it is. Paul's asking Philemon to give Onesimus a lot of mercy here. Onesimus not only already owed Philemon something, but then he took more and then ran. And so now legally, Philemon, when Onesimus comes back, he could have Onesimus killed. There was no conflict with the law. He could take him to the, to the, the government at the time and say, this, this was a slave. He stole from me. He ran away. He is a fugitive. He's come back to me, but I want him taken care of, and they would do it. But Paul says, no, no. Not only will you show him mercy, but you'll treat him like an equal. I mean, this challenges the way I feel about people who I think owe me something. When you show someone mercy, do you show them mercy and then treat them like a brother? Or do you show them mercy and then treat them like someone who owes you even more because you let them off the hook? You know, I think about how my boss handled that situation with that kid. He really showed me a lot of mercy. Because I screwed up. My job, in my job description, it says de-escalate situations with students, which means when a 14-year-old kid whose father died three months ago and he had to come to a private school, when he's in my face and angry, I don't give it back to him. My job is to de-escalate. It's to be humble. It's to walk away. I didn't do that. But my boss in that moment when he was talking to me about this, he didn't treat me like the employee who needed to be reminded why I'm the lowly employee. He didn't treat me like I owed him something because he didn't write me up because I got in a kid's face and swore and yelled at him. And he could have. But he didn't treat me that way. He, it, he came along beside me instead. He treated me like a brother, and he, he made it a teachable moment. And so I remember after a couple days, I thought, I'm going to try and follow his lead on this. And so with that kid, I tried to just show him mercy for that next year that I had him in class. And it was really difficult to show him mercy because every time I would reach out to him, he would just spit right back in my face, and it was really tough. But, you know, after, after a while, we just kind of learned to coexist. He did his thing. I did mine. We were fine. About a year later, he ended up leaving my school. He uh, got into it with a lot of other teachers. He just got in a lot of trouble. He, he couldn't maintain balance. And so he came to my classroom uh, before he left. 
and he, ha- he had this poem that he had written, and he said, I wrote this poem about my experience at the school. I thought you might want a copy of it. And I didn't talk to him in a couple months, and I was like, yeah, great, thanks. You know, that's, I'll give it a read. And I stood up to shake his hand, <clears throat> and he said, you know, I'm really sorry. He teared up. That's, I'm doing this so you can see what he looked like in the moment. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about that one day. God's mercy goes a long way. But, you know, it, it, it makes me think about how Jesus treats me, you know? Not only does he show me mercy that I don't deserve, but he treats me like a brother. In fact, we could actually argue that Jesus, he, he even took it a step further than this, even more than what Paul's asking Philemon to do. Because when he shows me mercy on the cross, Jesus actually, he lifts me above himself. And that leads to our last point, which is that we can experience the whole gospel when we seek God's justice. Paul said, look, Philemon, if you look up to me, if you respect me, if you would call me a partner, then I'm asking you to welcome Onesimus the same way you would welcome me. And if he's done anything wrong to you at all, I'll pay for it. Charge it to me. Put it on my tab. Paul recognizes there's an imbalance here. Onesimus owed something to Philemon. And Paul's not condemning or condoning what Onesimus has done. He's simply saying that he will take the heat. This doesn't happen. This is so counterintuitive to everything that we believe in, in the idea of justice. How many of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket? Probably none of you because we're all Christians and we go the exact speed limit, right? Okay, so let's say hypothetically I got a speeding ticket a couple months ago. Um, what would have happened if when I got pulled over, the cop said, you know, you were, you were really flying, you know, you were doing 80 and it's a, it's a, a 35, and so I, this ticket, it's a $200 ticket, but you know what? I'm going to pay it for you. Has that ever happened to any of you? Me neither, because that isn't justice as I think of it. Here's how I think of justice. In, in this society, I think justice is the, the logical consequences of your actions. You don't get a job, you're not going to pay your bills. You commit a crime, you will go to jail. You speed, you get a ticket. That, that's justice to me. It's pretty black and white, but the problem is that God's justice, it looks different than my sense of justice. And I see that here with the way Paul's saying, charge it to my account. How is that okay that Paul is helping Onesimus this much? And I think about how much I help people and how when an opportunity to help someone in need arises, the long list of excuses and reasons that I make why I either can't or shouldn't help. And maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, but I think about if somebody's, like if someone's begging, if they're asking me for money, the first thing I think is, you know what, they made their own decisions. Or I'll even catch myself thinking, you know, I could help, but they'll probably use the money unwisely. So I'm actually doing them more of a favor by not giving them anything. I ran into this, um, you know, when I was flipping through the Gospels and looking at who did Jesus help, and I thought, well, he, he didn't approve of prostitution, but didn't he help prostitutes? 
So there must be something wrong with the way that I think about God's justice. And last weekend, my, my wife and I, we were in New York City, and we just wanted to get away, and we've been there three or four times. And, I, you know, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed by how many homeless people there are in New York City. And if you've walked through the city, you know what I'm talking about. And they will just, uh, just unabashedly ask for money. And my wife and I were in a Starbucks. We were in line at the Starbucks, just, you know, standing there. And a guy comes in, and he starts asking every person in line, do you have some extra change for food? And so some people give him money. And I, and I watched this guy, and I thought, I wonder if he'll get in line, because they have food here. But he didn't. Instead, he looked at the money, he counted his bills, got a big smile, and he left. And my blood boiled. And I just, all I could think was, this guy is, you know, he's probably just going right down to the next store, and he's going to ask everybody there for more money. And I looked over to my wife, and I, I just said, why are they here? You and I, on our incomes, we could barely afford to survive in New York City. Why are there all these people who have no money living on the street in New York City asking for money? Is it because they know that there's so many tourists here that someone will be dumb enough to help them? Is that why they're here? You know, I was so busy passing judgment on these people that the idea of actually just saying to this guy, yeah, man, I think I have a couple ones here. It really didn't occur to me. But my job in that moment was not to pass judgment. My job is to help where I'm able to help. But it's easier to give judgment than justice, isn't it? I'll say that again. It's, it's easier to give judgment than justice. And I was, pre- I was preparing this point, and I thought, this, this, I have a problem with this still. Because here's the problem. If Jesus were with me, if he were standing right there beside me in that Starbucks, he would know the difference, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he know who really needed his help and who didn't? And that would make all the difference in the world. If I could only know that this guy really needed my help and really deserved it, I would give him plenty of money. But I don't think he does. So I started looking. I was like, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. There's got to be some place in the gospel here where someone came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, I need some help. And Jesus said, sorry, fresh out. Go pound sand. There has to be a place in here where that happens. And so I looked. And I couldn't find it. It's not there. And I thought, maybe, maybe that's the whole point. Maybe the point is, because I'm not Jesus, I'm not tasked with deciding who deserves my help and who doesn't. I'm simply tasked with helping. And I think what I have to come to grips with, and I'm not saying what I came to grips with, what I still have to learn to be okay with is that sometimes seeking God's justice means that I get nailed to the cross in the process. Because sometimes I will help someone I will give someone some money. And they didn't really need or deserve it. So I got nailed to the cross on that one. But, you know, if I can't get past that feeling, like I've somehow been terribly wronged in that process, then maybe my idea of justice is completely flawed. I mean, I seem to remember this story about someone suffering what I would consider a great injustice on my behalf. 
What did this conversation look like before the world ever existed, before time existed, when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were together and God pointed thousands of years ahead and said, look, do you see that kid right there? Do you see that 16-year-old kid with the braces and the stupid Jetta that he always brags about to his friends who's really arrogant and kind of annoying? And Jesus is like, oh, Mike Henson. Yeah, that kid. The kid who contributes nothing to society, you're going to go die for him. You're going to pay his debt. Thank God Jesus didn't say, not him. Not him, God. He doesn't deserve it. No, he said, okay. Transfer Mike Henson's debt to me. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for all of it. You know, while I'm at it, I'll pay for his and hers and his. I'll take it all. See, God's justice is it's different than my justice. His is better. Mine is black and white. Mine is you do this, here's your consequence. God's is my love is bigger than your consequences. Richard Stearns, the guy who wrote the book, The Hole in Our Gospel, He said it like this. I thought this was great. He said, the idea behind the hole in our gospel is quite simple. It's basically the belief that being a Christian, a follower of Christ, requires much more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. In this sermon series, The Hole in Our Gospel, over the next six weeks, we're going to look at what What is missing here? What does God expect of me that maybe I'm not really living up to? That's what we're going to explore. How do we patch that hole in our gospel so that we can live the whole gospel? Whole with a W. My hope is that this is what you'll find. The hole isn't in the gospel. The hole's in us. Because we've forgotten something. Not God. And I think one of the most encouraging verses from this book of Philemon, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, is verse 21. It's where Philemon's, uh, Paul says to Philemon, I'm confident in your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. This letter, this series, it's not a correction. It's not, uh, it's not a criticism. It's an encouragement. It's a provocation. It says, I know you are good, and I know you can do this. I want to pray, and I want to reread this verse from Micah to open my prayer, because I think it encapsulates what God wants for us today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Lord, we ask that you would come and please make the good news complete and whole again. Patch the hole in our gospel, God, by weaving together humility, mercy, and justice into a fabric that covers that gaping hole within us and reflects who you truly are. Help us to see clearly the ways in which we have forgotten to live out the gospel as you intended. And empower us today to love not only in word, 
but also in deed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.